Even though we are well into the second book of Kings, the narrative at this point has nothing to do with royalty. Instead, readers are given an insight into the daily life of ordinary people during the Near Eastern Iron Age. The focus in these chapters is on a man called Elisha, who appears to have the ear of God during a particularly godless time in Israel, and who, along with his predecessor Elijah, is able to perform the kind of miracles not seen since the time of Moses. Elisha has just helped the widowed wife of a friend miraculously pay her way out of a debt, but his next adventure is an absolute showstopper which, when it comes to miracles, puts him in a whole other league. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 85, The Grateful and the Greedy. history, poetry, philosophy, wisdom and letters. Yes, some people believe that every word of it is true, but this podcast treats it as a book written by people for people. Its grandiose scale can be overwhelming, and my approach is very much the one you would take to eat an elephant, one mouthful at a time. Which is probably why we're 85 weeks in and less than a fifth of the way through. I won't be telling you what to believe, you can make your own mind up, but I do hope that you find this epic book as fascinating as I do. For reference, we're in the early pages of the Old Testament second book of Kings, and an itinerant holy man called Elisha is visiting a friend. to a village in the Jezreel Valley in northern Israel leads to an offer of permanent accommodation for Elisha. Shunam is not far from the mountain where Israel's first king Saul was killed in battle. When Elisha visits the place, a wealthy local invites him in for a meal. It's obviously good food, so whenever Elisha is in the area, he pops in to see her. This time, the woman makes a proposal to her husband. Elisha is obviously a genuine prophet, so why don't they build him some accommodation on the flat roof of their home? All he needs is a bed, a table, a chair and a lamp, and he can come and stay whenever he's passing through. It's a generous offer, and Elisha sends his servant, a man named Gehazi, to fetch the woman. It's unclear what lies behind the woman's generosity, but the prophet has the ear of both Israel's king and army commander, and so is in a position of considerable influence should the woman need any special favours. That said, the woman does seem content with her life, leaving Elisha the problem of finding a thank you gift for someone who appears to have everything. Elisha's eagle-eyed servant spots immediately what they can do for the woman. Her husband is old, and they have no son. Elisha calls the woman back and predicts that in a year's time she will be holding her baby boy in her arms. The woman seems desperate for a child and asks Elisha not to raise her hopes, but sure enough she falls pregnant and gives birth to a son. 
Once the boy is old enough to speak and run around, though, tragedy strikes. He falls ill and dies suddenly in his mother's arms. Distraught, the woman lays her son on the bed in Elisha's roof annex before asking her husband if she can head off to find the prophet. For some reason, she keeps the news from her husband, possibly so as not to distress him until she has exhausted every avenue to bring her son back to life. It makes sense for the woman to make a beeline for Elisha. He brought life from her womb when it appeared that she had given up on ever having a child, so why not see if he can bring that child back from the dead? The husband is confused as to why his wife wants to visit the holy man, as it isn't a special day in the calendar. But she grabs a servant, saddles up a donkey, and hurries as fast as she can to Elisha. At this point, the prophet is around 17 miles away on Mount Carmel, and as soon as he sees the woman approaching, he knows something is wrong with either her, her husband, or her son. He sends Gehazi to meet her and find out what the matter is, but she remains stoic and assures the assistant that all is well. However, when she reaches the prophet, the grieving woman clings to his feet. Finding this behaviour inappropriate, Gehazi tries to pull her away, but Elisha can see she is distraught. Even though he hasn't been given any divine revelation beforehand, Elisha knows something must be dreadfully wrong with the woman's child. It's a harrowing scene, and Elisha wastes no time. He sends Gehazi ahead of him to the woman's house, with instructions not to let anyone interrupt his journey. Gehazi is possibly younger and faster than Elisha, and speed is essential to save the child. The woman insists on coming too, but the mission is unsuccessful. Despite Gehazi's best efforts, the child fails to revive. Elisha's servant then hurries the 17 miles back to Carmel with the news. Elisha now makes his way to the house, and once he is in his quarters with the dead boy, he shuts the door and prays. Following the same procedure as Elijah, who was once faced with a similar situation, Elisha lies on top of the child, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. It's an unorthodox procedure, and not one which many holy men might get away with today, but slowly the boy's body becomes warm. After a quick break, the prophet repeats the process. The boy sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. Incredibly, he is alive. Elisha calls in Gehazi and tells him to fetch the boy's mother. When she arrives, he tells her to take her son, and she falls at his feet, overwhelmed at what has just happened. Elisha returns to the town of Gilgal, where a group of prophets have made their base. There is a famine in the region, but even so, the men gather for a meal with Elisha. He tells Gehazi to get a large pot of stew going on the fire, and because food is scarce, one of the prophets scavenges some wild vegetables for the meal, even though no one is quite sure what they are. Botanists believe that the vegetable in the stew is Citrullus colocynthis, a cucumber-esque plant that causes vomiting. As the men eat, they realise that they have just poisoned themselves and turn to Elisha for help. The prophet simply adds some flour to the pot to counter the poison and the food is edible again. 
On another occasion, a man arrives at the Prophet's colony bearing gifts of food. He brings twenty loaves and some corn on the cob, a much welcome feast during a famine. Elisha tells his servant to serve the meal to the prophets, but Gehazi is unsure how he can feed a hundred men with such little food. In what might be seen as a blueprint for Jesus' mass catering miracles in the New Testament, Elisha is confident that there will not only be plenty for everyone to eat, there will be some left over. He's not wrong, and every man eats his fill. Elisha constantly toggles between domestic matters in his own small community and international affairs of apparently far greater magnitude. So, when an enemy commander falls sick, a slave girl in his household tells him about a prophet back in her home country of Israel who can help him. At this time in Israel's history, bands of raiders from Aram periodically cross the border and carry off whatever they can find of value, including people. In one such raid, a young woman is taken captive and forced to work as a handmaid to the wife of Naaman, the king of Aram's military commander. Naaman is described as a man who Ben-Hadad II of Aram has great respect for, and readers are told that God was behind Naaman's military success. This is a surprising fact, given that he is a pagan, and some of his victories are against Israel. Bible brains agree that Israel's victories and defeats are all the result of divine intervention, and that Naaman might have been God's agent in a defeat against Israel. Naaman may be a brave warrior, but he is still subject to all the ailments that afflict people in the 9th century BC. As such, he finds himself laid low with a skin disease for which there is no cure. His wife's Israelite slave girl knows all about Elisha and is convinced that the prophet can help Naaman. Desperate for relief, the commander asks his king for permission to go across the border and be healed. Ben-Hadad even goes so far as to write a letter to King Joram of Israel on behalf of his general, and Naaman sets off laden with gifts. In his saddlebags, Naaman brings 728 pounds of silver and 146 pounds of gold, as well as 10 sets of clothing for the man who heals him. If you're a bit of a klutz with imperial measurements, I've put the metric ones in the notes. The letter sent by Ben-Hadad leaves Joram nonplussed. He can't understand why Aram's king is sending someone to him to be cured of a skin disease. Does Ben-Hadad think Joram is God? Is he trying to pick a fight? Outraged, he tears his clothing, and when news of this reaches Elisha, he sends a message asking the king to send Naaman to him if he wants to know if there is a prophet in Israel. Naaman then points his horses, chariots and stately entourage in the direction of Elisha's home. Rather than come out himself, Elisha sends a messenger to tell the commander to wash himself seven times in the river Jordan, after which he will be both healed and purified. Naaman is appalled. He is a great man in Aram and expected a face-to-face -face with Elisha at the very least. He wanted him to put on a show, calling down God and waving his hands and curing him. And why the Jordan? Naaman sees the rivers that flow through Damascus as infinitely better than all the water in Israel and huffs off in a rage.
Fortunately for the general, his advisers calm him down with some common sense. If the prophet had told him to perform some elaborate ritual, he would have done it. So why not do something as simple as wash in the river? Contrite, Naaman washes himself seven times in the Jordan and emerges not only healed, but with what the Bible describes as skin as unblemished as a child's. It's a powerful miracle, and Christians believe Naaman's bathing in the Jordan foreshadows the baptism of Jesus in the very same river. The effect on Ben-Hadad's general is immense. He is instantly converted and goes to find Elisha, telling him that the only God worth bothering with is the one in Israel. Naaman offers the prophet the gifts which he has brought with him, but Elisha refuses them, the suggestion being that God's love is given for free. In the end, Naaman asks for as much Israelite soil as can be carried by two mules, no doubt so that he can still worship the God of Israel on Israel's turf once he returns home. Aram's military commander vows that he will only ever sacrifice to Israel's God, but has one caveat. He regularly enters a pagan temple arm in arm with Ben-Hadad and has to bow at the altar there when the king bows. He asks God to forgive him when he does this and, possibly impressed that this pagan has more faith than most Israelites, Elisha sends him away with his blessing. Factoid, ancient Jewish commentators believed that Naaman was the archer who shot the fatal arrow which killed Israel's king Ahab. There is a huge amount of ancient fan fiction around Bible stories, none of which is backed up by anything other than hearsay. Purists believe that if it's not in the Bible, it's not fact, while many who aren't religious struggle with seeing much of the book as fact, which is a whole other story that we're not going to get into now. Disappointingly for Elisha, his servant Gehazi is not as spiritually minded as he is and has his head turned by Naaman's booty. Thinking that the pagan commander from Aram got away too lightly, Gehazi chases after him. His plan is to at least part him from some of the goodies he has brought in his caravanserai. Naaman sees Gehazi coming and climbs down from his chariot, checking if everything is okay. Gehazi tells him that a small donation might be acceptable, especially as two young prophets have just arrived from a prophet's commune in Ephraim. He suggests a gift of one talent, 73 pounds of silver and two of the sets of clothing. Gehazi lies through his teeth that he has been sent by Elisha, but Naaman is still high on life after his healing. He takes twice the amount of silver Gehazi requested, places it in two bags and has two of his servants take them and the two sets of clothing ahead of Gehazi. Rather than take the gifts on to Elisha, Gehazi sends the men back to Naaman before bringing the swag back to his own house. When Gehazi next sees Elisha, the prophet asks where he has been. Gehazi lies that he hasn't been anywhere, but Elisha claims that his spirit was with him and saw him out on the road with Naaman. He is angry with his servant. The conversion of a powerful enemy is not the time to be lining their pockets. Elisha is appalled that Gehazi must have dreams of buying olive groves or vineyards or slaves with Naaman's money when his focus should be on the joy of a man's healing and spiritual redirection. For this, Elisha promises that Naaman's illness will now cling to his servant and his family forever 
a prediction that comes true immediately. Gehazi departs with skin as white as snow. The action immediately swings back to the mundane and prosaic as a bumbling prophet makes a mistake that could cost him a lot of money. The holy men who Elisha lives with decide that their current accommodation is too small and that they should build themselves a new centre by the River Jordan. The Israelites believe that the river has an aura of spirituality. Joshua parted its waters as the Israelites first entered the Promised Land and the Aramean general, Naaman, has just been healed here by Elisha himself. Elisha appears all for the idea and endorses the build by accompanying the men to the construction site. The suggestion is that the men should each cut down some wood and use it to build the structure, but work stops abruptly when one prophet's metal axe head flies off and lands in the river. The man who was using the axe is mortified. The tool is a borrowed one and he can't afford to pay the owner back. Unfazed, Elisha throws a stick into the water where the axe disappeared. Miraculously, the tool floats to the surface where a grateful prophet retrieves it. At this point, the second book of Kings might as well be called the book of Elisha, and it seems clear to readers that the prophet's wish to receive twice the spirit as Elijah is also resulting in twice the airtime. International duties come calling again when Israel's old adversary Aram goes on the attack. Ben-Hadad II chooses a suitable base from which he can launch his offensive, but Elisha receives what the book describes as a message from God, warning Israel's King Joram that the area is swarming with Arameans. When Elisha's intel checks out, Joram keeps a wide berth at the enemy camp. Each time Ben-Hadad moves to a new location in the hope of engaging Israel, Elisha informs Joram, who evades him. Aram's king knows that these evasions cannot be coincidence and is furious that he must have a mole in his ranks. He is informed by one of his officers that it is not an opportunistic member of the Aramean army who has been passing on secret intel to Israel for cash. Instead, Joram learns about Aram's top secret military plans direct from Elisha, who appears to be able to teleport his spirit to spy on Aram's military manoeuvres. Ben-Hadad's solution to the Elisha problem is to find out where the prophet is and capture him, but he might as well try and catch a shadow. Still, he sends horses and chariots to the city of Dothan in north-central Israel, where the prophet is believed to be holed up. The troops arrive at night and surround the city, an immensely elaborate operation to capture one man, and it's proof of how much of a thorn in the side Elisha has become to the Arameans. By now, Gehazi has been replaced by a new servant, and when the man sees the enemy force surrounding the city the next morning, he panics. Elisha reassures him. Those who are with us are more powerful than those who are with them, he says enigmatically. According to the book, God has put a divine army on standby, and Elisha prays that his servant can see it. Sure enough, the man sees the hills filled with horses and fire chariots, similar to the one which is believed to have whisked Elijah away from the River Jordan in the previous episode. 
As the enemy approaches, Elisha prays to God that Aram's soldiers will be blinded, and his request appears to be answered immediately. The Aramean army stops in its tracks as no one is able to see a thing. Capitalising on the enemy's sudden handicap, Elisha approaches the troops, telling them that this is not the road and this is not the city, pulling off an effective Jedi mind trick several millennia before Obi-Wan Kenobi. Elisha then offers to take the Arameans to the man who they are looking for and leads them off to the nation's capital, Samaria. Here, he asks God to give the men their sight back and, according to the book, God does exactly that. Readers can only imagine the soldiers' horror when they realise that they have been led into the heart of their enemy's citadel with no means of escape. It's only through Elisha's compassionate intervention that Joram agrees not to have them all killed. Instead, Elisha suggests that the king lays on a great feast for the soldiers, which seems a surprising way to punish an invasion force. However, the plan works. Their bellies full, the grateful Aramean troops return to their own country and the border raids cease. On both a national and a local scale, the miracles continue. What happens next, though, is one of the most remarkable military comebacks in the Bible, if not the history of the written word. From a point of unimaginable weakness and involving people who are so utterly marginalised that they exist outside of the framework of society comes the unlikeliest of victories. And, full disclosure, I think it's my favourite of all the Bible stories. And it begins with a mother eating her own child. Trust me, you'll want to listen to the next episode. by me Chaz Bayfield with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Feel free to send any feedback to contact at holybible.com and if you like what you hear why not tell your friends and family or if you're feeling very generous leave us a really nice star rating wherever you're listening. Thank you very much and see you next time.